Guys, today um, I'm going to talk about something that is is very, very serious. And, and this is a message that has been on my heart now for about 12 years. Um, it's, a, it's a heavy message, and it all starts back in, in 2007. Um, I met a woman named Stacy Peterson for the very last time. It was August 31st, 2007, and I, I had met with Stacy and her husband Drew a, a number of times over 18 months, probably five to six times, maybe seven, over about 18 months, and um, sometimes individually and sometimes together. So sometimes I would meet with just Stacy, sometimes I'd meet with the two of them, and, and I even did uh, a ride-along in Drew Peterson's police car. Most of what was shared with me in those counseling moments with them came across as nothing that stood out a whole lot. As a matter of fact, there, there, were, there weren't a lot of things that, that, were, that were gigantic red flags to me at the time. Now, here's the thing. There was a 30-year age difference. Okay, that's significant. Uh, there, there, were, uh, admitted, there was admitted jealous behavior by Drew. But for the most part, they both acted as though this was a normal experience. And Stacy had called me the day before, and she asked if I could meet with her the very next day. I remember looking at my Outlook calendar on my computer at, at, at work, and I realized I actually had the next morning available. So I said yes. That I'd never heard before, and it woke me up to a, a new level of the knowledge of good and evil. She told me that Drew had killed his previous wife and made it look like an accident. I'll be honest with you, they don't prepare you for that kind of stuff in seminary. Stacy made it very clear to me that I wasn't to tell anyone about it, but that she just wanted me to know. Two months later, Stacy disappeared. And she's presumed dead, and Drew is the only suspect in her disappearance. And for those of you who don't know, partially because of my testimony, they reopened the case into Drew Peterson for the murder of his previous wife, Kathleen Savio, and he was convicted in 2012 of her murder. Drew has now been incarcerated for 12, uh, he's been incarcerated for, um, for 10 and a half years. I had no idea what to do, you guys. I had absolutely no idea what to do. I was totally at a loss. And the truth is, most pastors don't know what to do when things like this come their way. Some of you might think that we, we, we're supposed to kind of be a jack of all trades. And I can just tell you what, it's just not the truth. There's so many things that we don't know. And, and most pastors don't. A recent study of over 2,000 seminary graduates asked them about what they learned regarding domestic violence in seminary. And only 40% said that they had adequate instruction in it. And, and what that means is 60% didn't. And I can tell you that I fell in that category of the 60% who didn't. So we can conclude that most churches don't know what to do, and it's dangerous because the, the statistics tell us that we're in an epidemic and the church is not prepared to handle it. The National Domestic Violence Hotline says that one in four women and one in seven men will be victims of severe, catch that, severe physical violence in their lifetime. And three in ten women and one in ten men will be victims of rape, physical violence, or stalking to the point that it affects how they live out their lives afterward. Guys, PTSD is real. 
It is real. Then, of course, we, we have to look at the question of false accusations because they do happen. It's just a reality. But, but the reality is that it's not a whole high percentage. In 2008, a study by law professor uh, Nick Bela um, said about 2% of women make false accusations. And in 2017, a Los Angeles deputy district attorney said that it was far more likely for people to lie, catch this, and say that they were not abused when in fact they were. It is far more likely for people to lie and say they weren't abused when in fact they were. Why would that be? Fear of reprisal. Fear of what they will face when they go home. We must acknowledge the possibility of false accusations. And for the record, I have stopped working with a victim before because of false accusations. And I have told many people that, I have, that I've worked with, if you don't tell me the truth, then I'm not going to be able to trust you from that point on. And I will stop working with you. We have to tell the truth. The truth is that the church has about the same rate of domestic violence as the rest of the world, which is particularly sad for, for many reasons, not the least of which being that Jesus said that he came to do some really important things. And we can read about it in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. Luke 4, 18 and 19, picture this. Jesus came to the temple. And the scroll is unrolled, and it, it, he, he goes to a part in Isaiah, and this is what it said. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a good word for victims. This is a good this is good news if you're a victim. Sadly, the church has not acted out that very well. For many victims of domestic violence, the church is not a safe place, and it's just wrong, and it's sad. One study, uh, one article in the New York Times, uh, they published an article on how church culture in intersected with domestic violence. And guys, it's not very pretty, and here's an excerpt. I want you to listen to this. It says, one Sunday last year, and these aren't real names. Isabel's husband, Max, came home from his Anglican church in Sydney, Australia, brandishing sermon notes. Anytime you hear brandishing in sermon notes, you know it's not being used well. The minister had preached that day on the need for wives to accept their husband's authority. Max, a parish leader, yelled, you don't get it, do you? The wife has to submit. Then, as he often did on weekends, he took Isabel into their bedroom and raped her. The words he had heard in church, she told me, gave him fuel for his cruelty. Isabel, which is not her real name, had been crippled with shame and fear, but she eventually left him after he threatened to kill her. It continues. The article says, We found that many local pastors did not believe women who came forward with stories of abuse. Church leaders often told women to endure and stay. The stories we heard were brutal. Decades of repeated rape, assault, financial control, emotional abuse, needing to ask permission to perform mundane acts like drinking lemonade. 
suicide attempts shattered lives and crashed uh, crushed self-esteem a significant number of perpetrators were church leaders hear that police reports of rape by clergy husbands piled up on my desk guys when i hear that it just breaks my heart oh jesus have mercy on us god help us get this right we have to get this right Stephen Tracy, uh, he's a professor of theology and ethics at Phoenix Seminary in Arizona. So he's part, of the, he's part of us. He wrote in 2007, It is widely accepted by abuse experts and validated by numerous studies that one-fourth to one-third of North American women will be assaulted by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And this is the part that literally stuck a knife into my heart. And that... Evangelical men who sporadically attend church are more likely than men of any other religious group and more likely than secular men to assault their wives. This is not somebody who hates Jesus. This is a guy who's a professor of a seminary who is looking at facts and he's acknowledging a very, very hard truth for the church. Here's the thing, guys. When the Bible the Bible is used to free people when it's discerned properly. And it's used as a noose and to, to pacify and suffocate in the hands of people that are intent on justifying their evil deeds against victims. It can be used both ways. We're going to use it for freedom. How we handle scripture matters, doesn't it? Paul's admonition to Timothy is strong. 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. It's not enough to know, uh, it's not enough to know or be able to, to spout out scripture. It's about how you apply it. And, and we need to know how to do this right because we don't want to be people that are going against Jesus' mission statement, which is to free prisoners and to break off chains. We don't want to be people who, who inadvertently shackle people, the very ones that Jesus came to set free. We can't do this. About two years after Stacy disappeared, I had spent those two years begging God to show me just begging God to show me what my role was in this. And I asked questions like this. God, why did Stacy tell me this story? What am I supposed to do with this now? My personality type, I'm an ENFP, if you guys know Myers-Briggs. And so what that means is, like, my personality type is, I'm always looking at the bigger picture. I'm always saying, God, I see, I see this much. But I want to see more. I want to see what my role, like, what is my role? Do you have more purpose in me? Because, like, if you have something else for me in this, I want to get it, and I want to help other people get it too. That's how he's wired me. So I prayed for two years that God would show me what he had for me in this. God, what am I supposed to do? It cannot be just with the end of Stacey Peterson. God, please let it not be. And I got a message on Facebook one day from a woman named Susan Murphy Milano, who at the time was a world-renowned expert in domestic violence, and she just happened to live in the suburbs of Chicago. And, and she messaged me, and she said, would you be interested in meeting me for coffee, because I have some stuff to share with you. Sure. 
So I met her for coffee, and I'm not even kidding you, for about three or four hours, she lit into me and told me all the things that I did wrong with Stacey Peterson. All of it. She just ripped me. And I sat there, and I just listened, and I took it all in. I was like, ah, oh, is this what I prayed for? I, I, God, I was really praying for more of a positive experience than this, and and I'm just getting the, I, she read me the riot act. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you write down details? Why didn't you go to different, uh, different um, police? Uh, why didn't you go to the state police? Why didn't you do this, all this? And I'm just like, I, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. And then she looked at me and she said, I really think that you could be part of helping to change church culture. Are you interested? I was like, oh, that was a twist. And I'm like, uh-huh. And she goes, let me get this straight. I just tore you apart for hours, and you're interested in this. Why? I said, because I prayed for you. I said, I know that God sent you to me so that I could learn. And in humility, I learned as much as I could from Susan Murphy Milano. Susan died on the fifth anniversary of Stacey Peterson's disappearance which was right after Drew was convicted for Kathleen's murder. I was finally in a position to help victims of domestic violence. But I was terrified. So Susan called me. This was a couple of years before she died. She called, um, I'm coming to your church now. And I've talked to a victim, and she wants to meet with you and me, and we're going to help her get free from her abusers. So I'm coming at 11. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I have some, she's like, I'm coming at 11. Got it. So she came, and we waited for, for this woman. And, and, and I, I remember seeing this woman pull into the parking lot of the church, and she got out of the car. And I'll never forget how she looked because she literally was shaking, and her head was on a pivot, and she was looking in every direction. And she made this long walk up the church sidewalk. If you, if you were ever at our last church, you know that it was this really long sidewalk from the parking lot. And she was shaking, and her head was just doing this. And I just thought, what in the world? She, she stepped into the building, and we sat down with her, and she told us one of the most horrific things I've ever heard. She said, I'm married to a police officer, and he has raped me daily at gunpoint for 10 years. Uh, again, seminary doesn't teach you how to deal with things like that. And I looked at her and I just said, why, why, are, why did you come here? She said, I wanted to take a risk and tell one more person. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, some years ago, I went to my priest. And it started out really warm and inviting because he invited me into his office. And when I started to tell him what was wrong, he looked at me and he said, You need to go back to your husband. This might very well be your cross to bear. You need to submit to him. That's what the Bible says. And she said, that day I decided I was never going to tell anyone my story again. 
Because if that's what God thought of me, there's a reason that people think that way too. And I said, why now? Why have you come to us now? And she said, because I know he's about to kill me. Before we go further, I want to define some of our terms today and be very, very clear about what we're talking about. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, here is how domestic violence is defined. Domestic violence, also called intimate partner violence, domestic abuse, or relationship abuse, is a pattern of behaviors used by one partner to maintain power and control over another partner in an intimate relationship. Now, when you hear domestic violence, I know the very first thing that you think is physical violence. And, and that makes sense because those can be the most obvious forms of domestic violence. But it's also emotional abuse. It's sexual abuse. It's verbal abuse. It's financial abuse. And I believe the most damaging is spiritual abuse. Here are some uh, examples of those forms of domestic violence. And, and, and I just want you to sort of like, as you hear this, I want you to sort of uh, just, just think either maybe about a, a relationship that you've had before or one that you've observed and just personalize it. Does your partner insult, demean, or embarrass you with put-downs? Does your partner control what you do, who you talk to, or where you go? Does your partner look at you or act in ways that scare you? Does your partner push you, slap you, choke you, or hit you? Does your partner stop you from seeing your friends or family members? Does your partner control the money in the relationship, take your money or your social security check, or make you ask for money or refuse to give you money? Does your partner make all of the decisions without your input or consideration of your needs? Does your partner tell you that you're a bad parent or threaten to take away your children? Does your partner prevent you from working or attending school? Does your partner act like abuse is no big deal, deny the abuse, or tell you that it's your fault? Does your partner destroy your property or threaten to kill your pets? Does your partner intimidate you with guns, knives, or other weapons? Does your partner attempt to force you to drop criminal charges? Does your partner attempt to uh, threaten to commit suicide or threaten to kill you? Does your partner tell you that God wants you to do whatever they say? Now, here's the thing. If you're in a relationship where any of those things are taking place, you are in a precarious spot. But let's be very, very clear about this. Let's be very clear. Some of these are absolutely zero-tolerance issues. It is as black and white as it can get, right? Some of these are, are where you just know, like, if this happens once, you get away to safety as fast as you possibly can. But the reality is, is that some of those things... One of those, one of those the, the financial uh, abuse issues, some of these things can be because people were raised in dysfunctional families. And we bring those dysfunctions into our relationships. So we're, we're not healthy and we do need help, but it may not be 
an issue where you just say, I've just got to get away from this person immediately. You see, some of them are absolutely zero tolerance. You can't have any of this. Some of it could just be family of origin issues where dysfunction is playing out in your current relationship. What we're talking about is a pattern of bad acts, and that puts you in a far more serious place. We're not talking about isolated sins. Every single one of us has said something to our partner that is sinful and wrong, and you've had to go back to say, wow, I am really sorry that I said that. I never should have said that to you. Help me never, Lord, help me never say something like that to my partner again. We've all said stuff. We're not talking about isolated incidences. We're talking about patterns of bad behaviors that are designed to subjugate another. There is no place for subjugation in any of our relationships. That is not biblical in any way, shape, or form, and you do not have to tolerate it. The situation with the woman who is abused by her police officer husband, it probably sounds like an extreme case to you. But I can assure you that it's not. Countless women and victim advocates have told me that while churches are often the very first places that victims go to for help, that many of them put the blame for the abuse back on the victims. And they say things just like that woman heard from her priest, that actually it's honoring to God to stay in it that it is her cross to bear or his cross to bear. And here's the thing. When I hear that, that doesn't sound like the gospel to me. That sounds less like the gospel, which brings freedom than enabling the bad behavior, these bad behaviors which harm victims, emboldens abusers, and seals the fate of both. When victims are in these relationships, it does them no good, and it does the, the person that's doing the abuse no good to stay in these places because that's enabling the sin of another. It's not healthy for either person. I'm confident that everyone here would agree that these things are not okay. And, and, and for at least two reasons. And one is the simple fact that, 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 that when we turn away from the needs of the person that God has placed in front of us, we are not being the good neighbor that Pastor Steve shared about just a couple of weeks back. I love how he defined what a neighbor is. Who is your neighbor? It's the person that God has placed right in front of you. We are called to care for the needs of that person that's right in front of us. And how can we be a neighbor to someone if we're not paying attention to that? We're actually violating the teachings of Jesus about what it means to love our neighbor if we just ignore them. James 2.16 tells us how not to treat those in need. It says, if one of you says to them, and them meaning someone in need in front of you, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? We are called to live lives of faith, faith that acts. Love does. I love what Bob Goff says. Love does. It's an, it's an action. It's not just, hey, I see that you're going through a hard time. Good luck with that. I'm just going to be over here praying. No. So many times we're called to be the answers to people's prayers, aren't we? Because love does. The second reason that I know that, that we're not for this is that the gospel is for us. It is for us, and it gives us freedom. Galatians 5, 1, one of my favorite verses, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. There is nothing to me that describes uh, an abusive relationship any, any better than a yoke of slavery. Nothing more so. There is no love between a husband and wife when there is abuse involved. It is the antithesis of the love that Jesus calls us to live. And he says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. But the gospel as presented by some churches to victims of abuse is not good news at all because it leaves victims in this place where they feel like God is for them to stay in that place and so is the church. And that's not good news at all because it leaves victims enslaved. It's the opposite of freedom. It is absolute oppression and they're stuck. And then I know what happens after that because... When the church believes these wrong ideas about abuse, so do the family members of the person who also goes to that church. And do you know what happens then? You have victims become shamed when they say they want out by well-meaning family members often. I've seen them over and over. And the family members will say, well, you know what it says. Sorry. Malachi 2.16. You guys probably all know what it says, don't you? says, God hates divorce. Okay, I guess that settles it. Well, it doesn't settle it. Because everybody knows that part, but no one knows what it says next. I bet nobody here knows. It says, God detests the man who cloaks himself in violence. It's not blaming the woman for wanting to get out of an abusive relationship. It's blaming the man for, for putting a cover cloak. He's cloaking his intentions and, and, and getting rid of her without biblical grounds for divorce. It's saying, I hate divorce because my intention was for you to love each other well for life. Marriage is for life. And abuse breaks that, not the person who says, I've had enough. Does that make sense? Malachi 2 is one of the most horribly used verses against victims of abuse because here's the thing if that's all you know and you hear god hates divorce well i guess that's the worst thing that can happen in the whole world then well i'd say that it's worse to have your daughter sent home in a body bag the gospel is for us it's for us it is for freedom Let me be clear about this. In the Garden of Eden, God instituted marriage. God, God knows it's not good for man to be alone. I can so attest to that. I'm really, really bad alone. I am. I, can't, I can, like, not do anything. I, I, I'm, I'm really not. I'm not being falsely humble. I really mean it. I'm just not good alone. And I'm blessed that I've been almost 18 years with my wife. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Marriage is important, and God has a high view of marriage, and we have a high view, an unapologetically high view of marriage here at the edge. We, we believe marriage is super, super important because God does. But what if, what if there are some churches and there are some pastors that have gotten the theology of divorce and, and God's heart about divorce a little bit wrong? What if? When that happens, here, here's what happens. We've placed the value, we've placed more value on the institution of marriage than the people in it. Does that make sense? 
And Jesus made it clear that people are to be treated best. You can look all through Scripture. Do you, do you remember when the Pharisees came at him when some of the disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees are like, whoa, hey, Jesus, you and your sinful disciples, you're doing work on the Sabbath, which was a violation of Old Testament law. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You kind of missed the point. The Sabbath was created for man. Man was not created for the Sabbath. I have no doubt that God would say the same thing about marriage. Marriage is not the, the uh, be-all, end-all. The people in it are what God's heart is for. And marriage, is a, in, a, in the right form, is a beautiful expression of God's love for us. He regularly chastised religious leaders of the day for treating people poorly in the name of religion. And, and there, this is something we cannot afford to get wrong because it literally can mean life or death for the people that we're sharing his word with. We can't get this wrong. The Bureau of Justice Statistics say that nearly three women are killed daily in the U.S. by current or former intimate partners. What's not talked about as often is that men are also victims of domestic violence. I've had several men reach out to me over the years to, to initiate conversations about how to get free from their abusers. And I can tell you there's far more stigma and shame attached to it for a man in our society than there is for a woman. And this goes for both. Either way is wrong. Either way is the opposite of the gospel. Either way is opposite of the love that Jesus calls us to have. Let's talk for a minute about divorce. And I'm going to ask you as, as much as you possibly can to set aside all that you think you know about it. I know that's really hard to do because right now you're, you're thinking through scriptures automatically. You're like, okay, I, I think I know what my theology on divorce is. And, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. I just want you to, to listen to this. I've read a number of books. Uh, there's, a, there's an Old Testament um, Biblical studies expert, um, PhD, and he's a former pastor uh, from Tyndale House Publishing. And uh, he talked, uh, he did several books on, on rabbinics. So he studied what the Old Testament, like what, he helped people understand the, the lens that people looked through in the first century as Jesus addressed these hot topic issues of the day. Because context really, really matters. And if I ask most people in this place, what grounds constitute biblical divorce? Give me the one word that you know as good church people. What's the one word that, that someone has said this to you if you've ever considered divorce? What's the one thing that you know for sure is grounds for biblical divorce? Adultery. Yes, we all know that. Can, hey, give yourselves, give yourselves a clap. You got one of them right. Really, that, that, that is, that's, the, that's the number one answer that you're going to get from any church people. And um, you'd probably point, like, you'd probably think about what Jesus uh, talked about. He had this encounter with the religious leader in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. And notice the Pharisees always came up and they were always testing Jesus on things. And, and when you test someone on something, you're, you're really not looking for the right answer. You're looking to trap them. Maybe you've been in conversations with people like that where you know that they're asking you something and it sounds straightforward, but you kind of have this sense that it's not. That's what was happening here. Matthew 19, 3 through 9. 
It says, and Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Okay, here's the thing. I understand reading this translation, why people um, hear that and, and then think that that is it. That's the conclusion. Because Jesus said right there that, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. When you hear nothing except for, it sounds conclusive. But as with everything in Scripture, we have to have this overall view of what God's heart is, what he says throughout Scripture, to make informed judgments on all that Scripture says. Because you think you have a full understanding of something, and you don't, and that makes it very dangerous. It's what Proverbs warns us against in chapter 19, verse 2. That desire without knowledge is not good. How much, and how much more will hasty feet miss the way? Another way of saying that is zeal without wisdom is dangerous. Here's the thing. A lot of us have a lot of passion for things, but when it's not well-informed passion, we can cause a wake of disaster behind us. It always injures people, and we can't injure the people that Jesus came to set free. So even though in Matthew 19, Jesus' words sound conclusive, they aren't. You're going to be like, wait, but it, but it says, except for sexual immorality. Well, let, just, just pause with me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The whole first part of the passage is about not divorcing. That, that God's original intention for marriage is that the husband and wife would come together and they, they would be together in it through life in a loving relationship. But Paul and God himself acknowledged that sometimes there are things out of our control. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, it says, But if, it's speaking about the marriage relationship, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. If someone leaves you, there's nothing you can do about it. You're not bound in those circumstances. So we see that there's another ground, potential ground for divorce, and it's desertion. So God allows for divorce in situations like that too, okay? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 19. We have to, we really have to get this. There's a pastor that I respect out in Oregon. His name is Jeff Crippen. He also advocates for victims of abuse and also works to, to get uh, abusers the help that they need as well. And uh, he pointed out that each generation has words or catchphrases that mean something to them specifically. Right? How many of you guys have kids that, that you, you thought you were all hip and cool with words, and all of a sudden kids are saying stuff, you're like, I have no idea what that means. And then you go to Urban Dictionary and learn more than you ever thought you should. Anybody? Okay, here's the thing. 
in 2,000 years, when people look back at 2019, and they, they, they look up words, like if they see things that we write today, but of course it'll be in text messages or on Snapchat, they're going to look up words, and they're going to see stuff like savage and woke. I'll tell you what, in 2,000 years, I promise you, those words will not have the same meaning that our kids mean when they say them today. So it would be very, very easy for people in 2,000 years to, to look back at this and go, I'm pretty sure I know what it means. I don't need the original context, but I can tell you this. They don't mean what, what people in 2,000 years from now are, are going to think they mean. Just ask anybody, any kid from this generation, and they're going to tell you it does not mean, savage does not mean being an axe murderer. And woke doesn't mean that your alarm clock woke you up this morning. Okay? It doesn't mean that at all. In the same way, the Pharisee who was asking Jesus about grounds for divorce was asking Jesus a very specific question with a phrase that meant something very specifically to people in the first century. I bet you didn't know that. And the phrase is, and it's two words together, it's any and cause. Any cause. And here, here's a little backstory on it. It might be more information than you're looking for, but I, I just really want you to, to get how they came, how, why they came at Jesus with this phrase, any cause. There was a sect of Pharisees um, known as the school of, of the Rabbi Hillel. Uh, rabbis ran different schools, and he was one of them. And he lived several decades before Jesus' public ministry. And, and he looked at Old Testament law, which governed divorce, and he took a very liberal approach to the scriptures. It's what people's tendency is to do when scripture doesn't say what they want it to say. Amen? Right? That, that happens a lot. So, so Deuteronomy chapter 24, it speaks to more biblical cause for divorce. And this is what verse 1 says. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and it would have understood that to mean as sexually immoral. It would have covered a number of things. So they're, they're, that's specifically about sexual immorality. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her away from her house. And I'm not going to keep going in that passage, but it's the picture of divorce because of sexual immorality. Well, Hillel, the, the rabbi Hillel, he kind of parsed the words. And he took something that was very commonly interpreted as sexual immorality. And he, he, took, um, he took the phrase, something indecent, and he turned it into something and indecent. So he separated something that wasn't meant to be separated. And he took something to mean, I mean, that could be anything, right? Something? You wanted to get divorced for some reason. So he took it to mean anything and sexual immorality. So what he was doing at the time was appealing to people that wanted to get divorced without biblical cause, which would be known today as a no-fault divorce. The most common kind of divorce today. Hey, you know, we can keep our court costs down with a no-fault divorce, right? We see that all the time. So he was appealing to men, mainly at the time, who wanted out of their marriages so they could move on to someone else. And what he was doing is, he said, any and cause are separate. 
So what that, mean, what that meant to him, and this is what he taught for, for years preceding Jesus' public ministry, was that divorce was allowable for any cause. So, so husbands, there are records, there are, there's case law built on this where husbands would divorce their wives literally because they burned their dinner. They would divorce their wives because they didn't wear exactly what they wanted them to wear. And they would send, hand them a certificate of divorce and they would be gone. And then the woman was in this society where she was almost untouchable and didn't have a way to make any money. So what happened to her? She was homeless and destitute and often turned to prostitution. Like these are bad, bad things. These are people-pleasing things. Not God-honoring things. It was in this knowledge and context that Jesus was being asked about this specific no-fault divorce where husbands were abandoning their wives for any reason they desired. And Jesus answered that question specifically. He was answering the question about the phrase, any cause, and everybody in first century knew what that meant. What, he was say, what, what the Pharisee was saying is, is the Hillel interpretation of the divorce laws from Deuteronomy, does that mean that you support that too? Is that what God has to say? And Jesus answered that specific question. Well, so is that conclusive then? Is that it? Nope. Because there were other laws that governed divorce in the Old Testament. And the other main passage is from Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. Exodus 21, 10 and 11. It's actually speaking of slave women, but I'll explain um, the interpretation. It says, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, fun times for women, huh? She is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, it's talking about as, as a wife, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one. So, so polygamy, not the design of God. Somehow, I, this is so hard for us to grasp, but God allowed a whole lot of things to happen. That were not right. And just because it happened, does it, there, there are descriptive things and there are prescriptive things. And this was a descriptive thing, which means don't have multiple wives. But it happened. And it says, if he marries another woman, so after the first one, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights, which, which was translated as love. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Now, here's the thing. This passage was written specifically to govern how slave wives were to be treated. And, and, and this is how the Jewish people interpreted Scripture. They recognized that if slave wives were to be treated with dignity that provided food, clothing, and love, then all wives should get at least that much too. And it's because, and, and because provision is one of the expectations for husbands uh, to practice for their wives. Abuse and desertion were by deduction understood by the religious leaders to be extreme versions of the lack of providing and a lack of love. And they were accepted as grounds for divorce 
in Exodus. So the four grounds that we have now, there are four grounds that we've talked about for biblical divorce are, of course, sexual immorality, Matthew 19 and Deuteronomy 24.1. A lack of food and clothing and love, and we get that from Exodus 21, 10, and 11, and desertion, 1 Corinthians 7.15. Now here's the thing. Does this mean that if, these, if the worst things have happened in your relationship, that you must divorce your partner? Of course not. First of all, we never, ever try to tell someone who's been victimized what they have to do. They've been told enough. This is a victim's choice. What this does, though, it shows, it shows people who have been victims that it, there are biblical standards and there are options for them in the context of marriage. And it shows God's heart for them that God does not want them to be bound up and be slaves in their marriage. And it also shows that, that the man or woman that has been abused has the choice in the matter. And, and what the church can do then is walk alongside the person who is getting free to help that person continue into freedom. But let's be very clear about this. Divorce is sad, and it's not desirable. Divorce is hard. And it is painful. But there are times that God provides mercy in unmerciful marriages. I'm going to ask the band uh, to come up on stage as we prepare to close. This message is not all about heaviness. It's really not. This is a heavy message. I'm telling you, even as I'm sharing this, it's heavy. But here's the truth, and here's the good news in all of this. God's heart can be applied to the victim and to the abuser. We're not talking about cheap grace. We're not talking about sweeping things under the rug. We're not talking about a, a quick, I forgive you, everything's okay, and now we're going to move on like nothing happened. That is not the heart of God. The heart of God is to look fully into the issue, to acknowledge it, to deal with it to wrestle through it. But what I am saying is that with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. God wants us to stand with victims and protect them as much as we can, and he also wants us to pray for, for change and genuine repentance in those who abuse. That doesn't take away from their wrongdoing, but it gives them a chance to come home too. Do you guys know that Jesus wants to carry your burden? Whatever burden you came in here with today, he wants to carry it for you. You weren't made to carry it. He wants to ease your struggle. He wants to take away your pain. His desire is for you to have a life that actually never ends. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is good news for victims, and that is good news for abusers. For victims, 
If you've been a victim, if you know a victim, just let them know that God is absolutely for them. He does not want them to feel bound up in a relationship that, that subjugates, that controls, that does all these things that make them feel less than the valuable individual that God has created them to be. If you know someone who is, is abusing or if you are an abuser and you're thinking, you hear this and it, it's almost as if you feel like, I, I know it's wrong, but I actually don't want to do right. Here is the news and here's what I would encourage anybody. All of us have been in places where we are in patterns of sinful behaviors and, and if we're being really honest, someone might have talked to us about it and we didn't want to change. We know deep down we don't want to change. Here, here's what we can do because God is bigger than all of that. He is bigger than even your will. And you can say, well, if I could pray for change, but I, I don't actually want to change, so I'm not going to change. Here's what I'd say. God can even override your will if you ask him to. If you know that you're on the wrong path, but, but you want to live differently, you can say, God, I submit my hard heart to you. I submit my mind that is almost cemented on going in the wrong direction. I've given my, myself over to sin, but I don't actually want that. So help me not want it even more. He wants to set you free from it. The world will say that, that people who abuse won't change. They can't change. It's impossible. The statistics show that it is very, very hard for abusers to change. I affirm that. But here's what I won't affirm. I will not affirm that, that there's anyone on the face of the earth that cannot be changed when they yield their spirit to the God who made them. And if you don't want to yield your spirit, say, God, give me a heart that wants to yield. Give me that heart. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I love Acts 3.19. It says, repent then and turn to God. It's not, repentance is never just about turning away, it's about turning to. We turn away from our sin and we turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God has made all things possible. All this month, all this month, we're going to do things uh, to help victims. Tober, and it's historically known as Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We have a number of things throughout this month. Look in the bulletin. We're going to put things on Facebook. You might have gone into the bathrooms. And both bathrooms, in the men's and women's restrooms, we have information on, on how to get free if you need to. Uh, we also, you, you, you probably got sheets that have domestic violence fact sheets so you can kind of grasp how, how, what this epi epidemic is all about. And there's information on there for a local shelter that is amazing called Mutual Grounds. And one of the things that they've said to us a number of times is that there's nothing more that they, they, they would like than to be able to partner with the church. And because victims often come to churches first, even though churches so often give the wrong advice, they want to partner with churches that understand this and have hearts for change. So we can do that. This month, we're also partnering with Mutual Ground. One of their biggest needs is uh, a refrigerator or a freezer. I can't remember which one right now. But it's in, I believe it's in the bulletin, and we're going to post about this. They have a whole lot of needs, but their biggest needs, and there's a, there's a way to give on our website all the, the next several weeks on our website. It's under outreach. So if you go to giving, it's under outreach, and then you'll see mutual grounds. 
So for the rest of this month, if you give towards mutual ground, it's going to go so so it's going to go to to buy this fridge freezer so that people can have food at the shelter. Shelters do so much work and they are they are under resourced. They need our help. A simple way that we can show the love of Jesus to people that have been held down and marginalized for so long. Guys, can we just stand together and pray before we close in worship? Father, I thank you for your great love for us. God, I thank you for your word which sets us free. God, I thank you that that we're a church that that really wants to be safe for victims. Help us to become that more so over the coming months. Father, I pray for hope to fall all over this place today. I pray, God, for uh, people who are victims, God, I pray that you would help them find a safe place to share what's going on in their lives and that the Bible would never be twisted to mean something against them that it doesn't mean. Father, I pray for those who are physically abused, God, that they would see it rightly, that they would not think that that is God's will for them. God, I pray for those who have been torn down by by words consistently, God, that they would see that those words are not from you and that they would be filled with your words and surrounded with community that walks alongside of them. Father, I pray for, for victims to be able to tell their stories and to do it in a way that brings an incredible healing in a safe community. God, let us be, let us be light in darkness. God, I pray that you would seal all of us, help us run with you for victims. And I pray for anybody who, who has abused God, that they would not hear condemnation, but that they would dare to hope for themselves. God, it is by your spirit that lives are changed. So we commend ourselves to you today. You are the healer. You are good. You are for us, and you set us free. And it is in Jesus' name name, the liberator of souls, we pray.